Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. We are continuing our series in Matthew chapter 8. So before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. May we listen in faith and respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was once a man who brought his family on a long trip. And as he was driving on the road, he saw a detour, which he was certain was a shortcut. However, as he went to that shortcut road, there was a huge sign saying, do not enter. Consulting his map, he smiled and said, nah, this is a hidden road that will save us some time and most importantly, bypass the toll. That's why they don't want us to enter. So, despite the protest from his wife, he went around the sign and he drove on that shortcut road. After an hour's drive, suddenly, as they came to a river crossing, they realized that the bridge was damaged and they couldn't cross over. Embarrassed, the man had to turn around and drive back all the way again. And as he came back to that sign that has originally warned him to not enter, he saw what was written on the back of the sign. Welcome back, stupid. Faith is only as good as the object it's placed in. When we place our faith in ourselves, we will eventually find ourselves humbled. When going through life, the wise person places their faith in an all-powerful God and obey Him and not our own wisdom. But today's passage... We are at Matthew chapter 8, and we'll begin with verse 5. Reading from verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So we see that we had Capernaum, when a centurion, that is a Roman soldier, came to Jesus to make an appeal to him. His servant is paralyzed and is suffering. This man has probably heard something about Jesus and he knows enough about how Jesus has been able to heal people. But also notice that he comes to Jesus and calls him Lord, just like how the leper also did in the passage last week. Now, this is tricky because while it can be him confessing the Lordship of Jesus, it can also just be him basically calling Jesus Sir. So which is it? Was he being polite and respectful here? Or was he acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God? We can't tell yet at this point, but let's go on and see if we can figure out what is happening. So then we continue to verse 7. And we see that Jesus agreed to come and heal him. Now before we go on, we need to understand that there's actually an issue here. You see friends, the Romans and the Jews are not people who are on good terms. The Romans were a conquering force who conquered the Jews and made them follow Roman laws and submit to the Roman Empire. So working with the Romans or to be seen as someone who's buddy-buddy with the Romans, that would make that person reviled by the Jews. So it's for this reason actually that tax collectors like Matthew were considered unclean and they were lumped in together with prostitutes and the unwanted. Now, for someone like Jesus... His willingness to help the Romans could be something that can be used by the Pharisees to condemn him 
or at least to spin the truth to make it seem like Jesus is working for the enemy. So strategically speaking, this is a bad choice for Jesus' ministry, isn't it? Yet we see here how Jesus is willing to do this out of his compassion. Now, if you put this in our modern terms, it'll be like a Palestinian refugee doctor who goes to an Israel soldier's house to heal someone there. Surely people will ask, are you supporting what they're doing to us? How can you help him? So even as we contemplate that, it makes us wonder. If we were in that same situation where we have the power to help someone, but it may not look nice from the perspective of others, will we follow the example of Jesus and still help? What would you do if perhaps someone comes to you and that person has fully embraced an LGBT lifestyle or is a transsexual person and they ask you for help? Would you help? Or would you be worried about being associated as someone who supports a LGBTQ++ lifestyle? There is a huge difference between helping and showing compassion and affirming someone's lifestyle and action, isn't that? So it looks like Jesus is showing us here through his actions to have compassion first above being worried about appearances. And of course, that's just incidental in the passage here. It's not Matthew's reason for writing this section. So we note that teaching point and we continue on to verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So friends, we see here how the centurion replies. And he says something surprising here, isn't it? That he's not worthy for Jesus to come to his home. Now, some people will explain this by saying, yeah, maybe the centurion has recognized that for a Jew entering into a Gentile home, it will be seen as something that defiles them because the Gentiles are not clean according to Jewish law. However, I don't think that's the best explanation here, and let me explain why I think so. Now, Matthew seems to be doing something intentional through this chapter here. And he's showing us how people respond to Jesus in such a way that we are left wondering exactly who is Jesus. So in the case of the leper last week, he bowed down before Jesus and called him Lord. And just like what's happening here, there's two ways to see this, right? One could just be saying he's super respectful. And the other is that he's bowing down and calling Jesus Lord because he believes Jesus is the Son of God who came down in the flesh and so is worthy of worship. Now, if he had believed that Jesus is a holy man or a prophet or even the Davidic king, he still would not be justified in worshipping Jesus because no Israelite worshipped their king. Worship is for God alone. So in that same way here, we see this ambiguity when this centurion comes to Jesus and then he says that he's unworthy of having Jesus under his roof. Is he saying that because he thinks Jesus would be uncomfortable Jesus is afraid of being defiled by entering a Gentile house? Or is he saying that he esteems Jesus so highly that what he means here is that he's not treating Jesus as a mere man, but as something more? 
Now, if we want to argue, no, the centurion could just be wise, knowing Jewish custom. I mean, that would be a fair thing to say, right? It wouldn't be too strange. Uh, he's living and working here among the Jews. But it would be a strange thing, isn't it, then, for the centurion to interrupt Jesus and tell him, it's okay, don't come to my house, when Jesus already said, okay, I'm coming. Right? After all, all of Jesus' healing so far happened in the presence of Jesus. He touched them or applied saliva or mud on them. So if he has heard about Jesus, right, and he's following the crowd in asking for healing, like what everyone is doing, then his intention is for Jesus, come and touch my servant so that he will get well. Right? So if he's concerned about that, right, and he wants Jesus to heal his servant, why would he then ask Jesus to come and heal his servant instead of just having his servants carry the sick man to Jesus himself? So if he thinks Jesus is some kind of a faith healer and he's concerned that, okay, this holy man is going to be defiled by coming to a Roman house, he would have brought the sick man to Jesus. But examine what he says, and it shows us that he believes that Jesus is greater than a faith healer because he is saying Jesus can speak, it will happen because Jesus has authority from above. So, I think his objection here about Jesus coming to his house is less about this Jewish-Gentile divide, but it's genuinely because he thinks so highly of Jesus that he really believes that Jesus can do this if he would just command it. So we see that he not only comes to Jesus in the belief that Jesus can heal, but he believes that Jesus has power that was given from above. He's not just a healer. And so to further support this, right, we can also see in the thinking, the analogy that the centurion used, uh, that, that helps us to see what's going on, right? He says he's given authority from his master to be the master of the men under him. So as he commands, they will obey. Then he applies that to Jesus and he expects Jesus to command and his servant to be well, right? And so he's saying then that Jesus is greater because Jesus can command a person, a situation, and is going to change. And we, we do see this, right? In Matthew, later on, uh, Matthew 28, Jesus himself says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And Jesus meant to say that he is seated on God's throne with full authority. So it seems here that even before Jesus reveals this later, in the Gospel of Matthew, this centurion who has heard about Jesus has put two and two together and has come to believe in this truth that is not known yet to the people at that time. And we can also see what this man believed is in amazing contrast with what the Pharisees believe because the Pharisees later on are going to look at the exact same thing and say, this Jesus is healing through the power of Satan. So what does this tell us? It tells us that this man really believed that Jesus had full authority over mankind and over circumstances, even such as sickness and death. And at his command, everything will follow his will. Another point to note also is that he is being commanded by Jesus in sorry, he's being commended by Jesus in verse 10. Not as someone who's, oh, you're very considerate of Jewish culture. No. Jesus commands him 
or having a great faith that was lacking even among God's people. So while this man may not fully understand the high Christology of what it means for Christ to be God the Son, he has responded in the right way and in faith. So Matthew is using his response here to show us what the right response to Jesus should look like. So for those who are reading this gospel for the first time back then, as they come to this part of the narrative, they'll be wondering, right? Oh, hold on now. What is happening? Who is this Jesus? Are people worshipping him? Is Matthew claiming that he's God? And this will be shocking and provoking to them as they try to figure out just, just what is Matthew trying to say here? So Matthew leaves things ambiguous, right? Matthew is not saying, look, this guy's understood the secret of who Jesus really is through some hidden knowledge. Matthew is saying, hey, look here. This is how you come to Jesus. So for those who read the gospel, the eyes of their hearts are open, you can see that Jesus is speaking with genuine authority in the scriptures. And so as they read this, they will look at this passage that Matthew puts in, and they'll get the point that he's trying to make. Indeed, this is how we too should come to Jesus and trust in his authority over all things. So we must come to Jesus by faith. And this faith should lead us to understand that Jesus is in charge. He has been given all power and authority. And on a side note here, we have to learn then uh, from the attitude that the centurion had towards Jesus. Now, here is a big boss, right? But he did not only believe in Jesus, he came in humbleness. So we too can see, actually, we should come before Jesus in humbleness. We should be people who acknowledge just how worthy and exalted he is. And I make this point because sometimes we tend to diminish this. We have this tendency to make Jesus into this hippie buddy in the sky who just wants you to be happy. But that's not right. Because thinking like that influences us to not take what he commands seriously. He is the Lord. And from here we see that we need to come to him in humbleness as he receives his grace that we don't deserve that is given freely to us in his compassion. So this humbleness in receiving his grace then will lead to an outpouring of faith in Jesus that is seen in our response to Jesus in our actions. And that's why actually Jesus comes to verse 11 and says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west Recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By coming to Jesus in faith, having that faith expressed in a trust, that faith has brought this man into salvation. That trust in Jesus that he demonstrated then is the fruit of his faith. So even as we learn here that salvation comes through faith, Jesus teaches us that there's going to be Gentiles even who through faith will be counted as part of God's people in the kingdom of God. However, there's a stern warning here that there are those who are sons of the kingdom, the Israelites, the natural heir of the kingdom 
who we would have expected to inherit entry into the kingdom, but these sons are going to be thrown out into the outer darkness instead. And from the language that Jesus used, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus is saying they end up in hell because they did not have faith. So be warned, there is an expectation of fruit in response to that faith. And the fruit that was lacking in the people back then, when they saw and heard what Jesus was doing, was one that came out of their trust in Jesus. And we also see, right, in the context of Matthew, he's speaking here of responding to Jesus, entrusting the things that he has said, the things he has done, and the authority that he has to command. So an empty faith with no fruit uh, in the form of trusting Jesus is actually a useless faith that cannot save. So this is a strong warning for the Jews that you are not getting into the kingdom just because you descended from Abraham. You can only come in through your response to Jesus in faith. With that, we come to verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And here we see that Matthew adds this point, that the servant was healed at the very moment to help us see that Matthew is trying to make this point, right? That Jesus really did have authority because that healing coincides with Jesus' command. And I think actually there's more than just that point that he's trying to make. Matthew may also be subtly implying that Jesus is God. Not kind of direct declaration, but subtly. Because he brings this idea, right, that Jesus speaks and it happens as spoken. And this is the first thing we see in our scriptures, isn't it? God said, let there be light, and there was light. So if we take that point, we couple that with how Jesus was worshipped by the leper. He accepted that, how he is called Lord, and how we know God does not share his glory with anyone. We begin to see here that Matthew could be using this already as a hint of Jesus' divinity, which will be fully revealed as you go, continue going on through Matthew. So it's not implicit in the text here, but it is an idea that flows throughout Matthew chapter 8. So we who know better, right, we can appreciate the irony. Oh, these people may not know this fully yet. They are responding in a way that helps us to see the truth that we can look for in the reflection of our own faith. Now, at this point, you'll be wondering, right? You know, why bother with all this long, drawn-out explanation? Why not just focus on the application, something useful for me that's helpful for my circumstances? Why spend so much time explaining all these verses and why this means that? And I think this passage is a good example to help us see why that's important. Now, primarily, when we do this explanation, this exegesis, it actually helps us to apply what we learn from Scripture in a correct way and helps us avoid wrong applications. Now think about it. There are going to be people who are going to read this passage. They're going to see faith and healing. And then they're going to preach about how healing comes through faith in Jesus. And this is what you need to do to get healed. Now, there's some truth there. Jesus is willing. Jesus is able to heal all our problems if we come to him in faith. But whether he does it on this side of life or in the resurrection is a different issue, right? So 
from the exegesis of the text, we can see, right, Matthew's intention, the issue here, is really about faith, about responding rightly and trusting in the authority of Jesus. This passage is not a guide to how we can obtain gifts from Jesus, how we can get healing. It's not telling, this is what you need to do, this is how you get that healing. So, if we understand that, then instead of telling sick people, hey, you need to level up your faith so that you can get healing in Jesus, we can look at them, talk about this passage, and look at those who are struggling with the sickness and point them that, look, what is this passage showing us? Showing us that we need to have faith that Jesus is in control and has authority. So while the sick servant finds healing here, this isn't promised to us. But we know that we can trust in the things that Jesus has promised us. So if we are sick then, in response to our sickness, we have to bring it to Jesus and we live knowing that Jesus is the one who has all authority over all things, even our sickness and health. And so, despite our faith and prayers, if we still remain sick, then this passage will not make us feel like, oh no, I'm, I need more faith, I need to do something more. No, it will actually help us to pray like John Calvin did in his last days. This is what he prayed. You, O Lord, crush me, but it is abundantly sufficient for me to know that this is from your hand. So friends, trust Jesus, no matter what your circumstances are, because in that faith, you are assured of the kingdom, and there, there will be no more suffering or pain. So as we come to an end, I'd just like to recap the applications that we've discussed about. Firstly, we saw in the passage, we must have faith that is genuine, that Jesus is in control and can do all things, and we come to him humbly, trusting and relying on him for all that we need. So reflect on that. If you are the type of person who gets angry with God or ignores or abandons God when things get bad, the genuine fruit of faith leads to belief in Jesus. We don't need to be healed in order to believe because we already have his words that guarantees the kingdom is ours through faith. Just need to hang on. Continue to be faithful, even as things get more and more difficult. Next, we see salvation comes by faith. The Gentiles come to salvation. So we have to make sure that unlike the Jews, we are not relying on the family's faith or our ancestors' faith. So if anyone here thinks you are saved because your father and mother, grandfather and grandmother are Christians, think again. If you do not have a genuine faith in who Jesus is, if you do not trust in his words, then you are not safe. So ensure the faith that you have is genuinely yours. It's not a second-hand faith that you're just borrowing. Following your family to church will not save you if you do not have faith in Christ. And that brings us to our final point then. If you have faith in Jesus, it will bear fruit like it did with the centurion. He was able to believe in Jesus so much that he didn't need the assurance of having Jesus come to his place physically, touch the servant, right? In that same way, how does your trusting in Jesus look like? Do you really trust him if you examine yourself 
for how you respond to things in your life. For us, trusting Jesus should mean trusting in his words, doing what he commanded, isn't it? So are you seeking to lead holy and righteous lives? Are you making disciples as Jesus has asked you to do? Or is Jesus just a ticket for you to pray, to request for things, in the hope that you will get what you want? If you only see Jesus as the person you come to to ask for things, for blessings, but you don't care for his words, for his commandments, then you will not be in the kingdom as he has won. And if that is you, repent now. Change your ways. Now, we can talk more about this, right? This is such a big topic, but the sermon is long enough already. So can I encourage you then, as we part, to fellowship with other Christians and talk about the implications of your faith, how it changes your life and how it should be affecting your brother or your sister, and then encourage each other to grow in your response to the words of Jesus. Meet up with each other, as Jesus has asked you to do, and seek to grow in him so that you may be assured that you too will be in the kingdom of God. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have seated him on your throne, that you have given him all power and authority. May we be people who see this and believe in it so much that it changes the way we live and the way we think. Have mercy on us, merciful Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.